Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. I'm glad to glad to get to join you guys. This is this is a message that feels so uh, it feels so like close to my heart. I, I, I was actually preparing last night, uh, or I was on the I think I was on the plane when this occurred to me for the fire. I was like, why does this why does this I've never I've never taught this before today, so that feels kind of raw and new. And but there's something deeper that feels like this is like taps into part of my story. And I was realizing, man, this this message kind of started for me years ago. Um, and the and the first event that came to my mind was I was at a, a goal setting seminar put on by Dr. Matt Hubbard and he, he does these goal setting seminars one a year. It's the first time I'd ever done it and I remember that uh, I was sitting there and it was the very beginning. He hadn't even gotten into like how to set goals or how to be productive and he said the first thing I want you guys to do is I want you to pull out a piece of paper and I want you to write down on this piece of paper everything you can see in your mind that you want for your life. And it made me so mad because I looked at it and it was timed. So just to add some stress to the process, he said, I'm gonna give you like 90 seconds or two minutes or something like that. And I looked down and my mind went blank. I, didn't, I, I literally couldn't think of anything. It was maybe like five or 10 seconds into it. I'm like, okay, I want, I want um, a house. I want like, okay, there's, there's things I can, I can think of things. And I started writing stuff down and I got to the end. I was really proud of myself. I was able to come up with several things. And then he starts going through, okay, this, is, this, is, this exercise is actually kind of an, excess, uh, an assessment of your relationship with your own desire, your relationship with your own vision for your life. And he said, if you, if you scored somewhere between like 20 and 30, then this is a real growth area for you. And if you scored somewhere between like 30 and 40, you're doing okay, but there's room for more. If you scored over 50, this is a real strength area for you. And I looked down at my sheet and there were 12 items on the sheet. And I remember thinking, man, this, I feel like this is a, this is a thread. This thing that, that Dr. Matt's um, shoving in my face is this, is a thread that I can actually trace way back, way back to when my real transformation started. Um, I was kind of a weird kid when I was little. I was in high school. By the time I was in, um, I think I was by the time I was 13. My family had been through three divorces, and so I had seen I had seen marriage done in a way that I didn't want. Um, and I have wonderful parents. They just, they just didn't know how to do marriage. And I, and I grew up with this like kind of attitude, like I'm not gonna do that. And so in, in junior high and high school, my friends are like reading sci-fi, I'm reading Gary Smalley marriage books. This is true. And I was, I was actually, I remember I was 19 and I was on this three day vision retreat, three day fasting retreat. And it's the first time in my life that I can tell you confidently, I believe that God spoke to me. And on this fasting retreat, God told me that he was gonna use me to build marriages. And, I, and it was the first time in my life that I thought, man, God is calling me into counseling. And I didn't know yet that there was actually, there was a, there was a sifting process that was gonna have to happen because I was carrying some wounds I hadn't, I hadn't yet identified. And then about two years later, Three years later, I was 22, I got married. And about two years into my marriage, those wounds came to the surface and uh, an addiction with pornography 
took over my life and shipwrecked my relationship with my wife. And I thought it was over. And I remember sitting in Gina's office, our beautiful couples therapist. And I remember thinking, Gina, it's so painful to be here. Not only did I, did I declare to myself, I was not gonna do this. I was not gonna be that guy. But I actually, I actually believed a couple of years ago, I actually thought God might be calling me to help people with their marriages. And say, oh, Brian, you think this disqualifies you? No, Brian, the fact that you're going through some brokenness, this is gonna be the thing that God uses to qualify you to bring restoration to people's marriages. And it's a, it's a confronting thing to ask that question, man. Am I really, am I willing to really face and own what I feel is embedded in the desire of my heart? My message today is called Army of One because when I was preparing this message, I was really, you know, I don't think the enemy is the barrier to our desires. I don't think the enemy is the thing that keeps us between us and the fulfillment of our purpose or the fulfillment of the desire that God's put in our heart. I think it's the fact that we accumulate these wounds and the world and our trauma and, and these disappointments and the conditioning and all these, uh, the, the people in our life that mean so well, but they don't know how to see you, that we learn not to trust our own heart. That we learn that, oh, these, these things that, that excite me, these things that, that give me real desire, that wake desire up for me, they're not good, they're not trustworthy, and our heart gets divided, and then our heart starts to compete against itself. So, so I, I want a big vision, but I also want security. I also want people to, to think highly of me, but I also want their approval. Like, I don't wanna to take too big a risks. And I was preparing this message, and, uh, and it was actually a, a proverb that I, I put in the message, but I, we probably won't even have time to get to it because uh, it comes at the end, that the message, it's, I don't think it's the heart of this message, but I was, I was with that proverb, um, Proverbs 6, 6, and 6 through 8, six, chapter 6, 6 through 8, where it talks about the ants. It says, look to the ant. And, and we're in an in a office. Uh, my office, the, the office of my practice, is an office that is definitely built on the largest black ant colony in North America. I'm confident in this. It has to be. Because there's, there's scouts every day. If you leave anything out... If you leave anything out, they will find it and you will come in the next day and there will be this dark line. I remember being so annoyed by it. And I'm sitting there and I, I had left some food out and there was, there was a boom, there was an invasion. And I'm like, are you serious? And I just, I felt like the Holy Spirit brought that, brought that, that verse to my, to my mind. And I thought, look at, look at what they do. All day, I'll be sitting in my office and it doesn't, this doesn't bother me at all. Like, I'll just see one random little scout ant and I'll kill it. And, and they're just, they're always looking. And it's like... They're so patient. And it's like in that moment when I saw this, the, the invasion, it's like felt like the Lord told me, that's what I want your heart to look like, Brian. I want you to send out expectation that I am going to deliver for your destiny. I am going to show up and I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. But every single day, you have to go out with expectation that you're going to find something. And then when the doors open, right, you attack. And I, that's where I got this name, Army of One, because our hearts get divided and we stop expecting. We stop looking for God to fulfill the desires of our heart. There was, a, um, there was something I observed after that 
uh, after that workshop a couple years ago, and I started to, whenever I'd read the Gospels, I'd realize there's this question that Jesus asks quite a bit in the New Testament, quite a bit in the Gospels. He'll confront somebody, they'll run up to him, or um, they'll push through the crowd, and a lot of times he, he, he responds with wisdom, a lot of times he re- responds with guidance, or he'll, he'll call out a truth in their life, but every once in a while he'll ask them that question, the same question that Dr. Matt asked us. He'll ask them, what is it that you want? And it just, it just stuck with me because I'm like, why would he ask that question? Why, why would he ask them? It's like, like the, like the, the Jesus life, the spirit-led life is, is a menu, and we're just, we're just there to order. I was like, that can't possibly be true. I didn't, I didn't know how to reconcile this question. It was really frustrating to me. And I was preparing for today, and I was realizing, you know, when you're growing up, you get these wounds that we don't know how to name. And those wounds teach you how to expect or how to relate to your own desire. I remember when I was uh, 11 years old, I was exposed to pornography for the first time. And pornography taught me really quickly. Pornography taught me that desire, sexual desire, was something that you hide. It, it taught me that without ever needing to say that out loud. It taught me that sexual desire is something that you're ashamed of, and it's something that you do by yourself, and it's something you don't let people see. And you know what? It doesn't hurt anybody. You just you keep it private. And then I remember like a little later in life, I was, I, was probably, I don't know, 15, 16, I was starting to like observe my dad's relationship with his career a little bit more, and I would ask him questions, and he would always say the same thing again and again. He would always say, man, the secret is you just got to keep your head down, Brian. And you got to understand, my dad is an incredibly hardworking guy, but he does not like, he gets overwhelmed if you put two tasks in front of him, right? He is so intelligent. He's a computer programmer, and he really thrives when you give him one problem to solve. That's, what, that's his favorite thing. So he loves it. Like, give me one thing. I'm going to do it better than anybody else can do it, but I don't want anything else. And so that model really worked for him. But for somebody that was like, man, I feel like God's calling me to add value and to, and to really equip people to have deeper relationships. When I heard, hear, put your head down, what I heard was, think small. Wow. And I remember being in school, not knowing, not knowing that I had uh, what we call an, a neurotypical brain. Um, a developmental psychologist would call it phonological dyslexia. I call it my super brain because what I learned to do in school was that I can't read as fast as everybody else. I can observe that really. I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the rest of the class. They're always done before me. What can I, you know what I'm, I'm really good at? I'm really good at taking a few pieces, putting them together, and acting like I understand the topic. I'm actually really good at that. So what I learned to do, what I learned to do is I would, I would like do these deep dives into a topic at home all by myself. I'd get obsessed with something. I'd get all focused. I'd learn all about it. And then I'd come the next day. I wouldn't even read the thing in the class, and I would sound like I knew what I was doing. And so I... I've learned to really love the unique way my brain is wired, but in school, what school taught me is the way you're successful is by faking it. The way you're successful is by teaching people or or convincing people that you're you're somebody that you're not or you have something that you don't. And so I'm looking at these, I'm looking at these patterns in my life. I'm like, man, if nobody teaches me, if nobody takes that 13-year-old kid or that 11-year-old kid under his arm, he says, Brian, man, all that energy you feel in your body when you saw those images, that's normal, bro. The fact that it like woke something up and you're like, you've got this, it feels like gravity is drawing you back. 
that's good. God put that there, but we got to learn how to guide it. We got to learn what to do with it. We got to learn where to, where to direct that energy because that passion that you felt when you looked at that thing, that was put there by God, but God has a special plan for that passion and it's going to create an intensity and an intimacy you can't possibly imagine, but it only happens within the realm of God's way, right? It only happens that we only get the fullness of that promise when, it, when we do it God's way. But if I don't have a model for that or a model for what does it look like to be healthy, ambitious, or uh, to be um, a healthy relationship to my own fitness. If, if nobody models that for me, I'm going to look to the world, and the world, the world is always happy to provide a model for you, aren't they? And they're going to teach you what to do with your desire. They're going to teach you that, A, your desire is something that God's going to take away from you if you submit it to him, right? What does is, what is the sexual liberation teach us? It teaches us that Real sexual fulfillment, sexual excitement, sexual passion, it comes in forms that God wants to take away. He wants to prohibit you from those things. Or real ambition, it comes from focus, uh, self-focus, and it comes from uh, self-gain. And if you submit those things to God, he's going to take them from you. And so I'm reading, these, uh, I'm reading this passage in Mark chapter 10. And I thought it was so interesting that there's these three stories right in a row where God confronts, God deals with somebody's desire and he deals with it head on and we see, whoa, that's what it looks like. When somebody's relationship with desire is that distrust, this desire is something that if I'm, if I'm gonna really submit my life to God, it's gonna be taken away from me. And then we see another example of a man who, who thinks, man, I, I really submitted to God. I believe, I, I wanna trust God with, with my desire, but I really wanna control what it looks like. I, I don't wanna trust him with what it looks like. I wanna control what it looks like. And then we see somebody who is truly free and so surrendered, he doesn't care. He says, God, I, don't, I wanna ask you for what I want, but I want, I want it your way. And we see these three very different outcomes. So if we're gonna jump into this and we wanna believe it, that what God is here to say is that desire is one of the main ways that God actually reveals his mark in you. That your desire is not something that he wants you to get rid of. He actually wants to unlock it. He wants to, he wants to get in touch with your desire so he can show you what your purpose is, what your passion is. So Mark 10, look at verse 17. It says, Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him. Everybody say, ran up. Yeah. Ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is actually, it's pretty important to stop. If you're going to understand this, this story well. You have to understand that this man is, is not trying to manipulate Jesus. This is not a Pharisee. This is not somebody who wants to test or uh, make Jesus look bad. This is a man who's running up in real, real reverence. In fact, that, that word, that word good teacher in the Hebrew is good rabbi is the word that's in the Hebrew. And rabbi was actually, you, you could argue easily that rabbi is actually the highest status. It's the highest level of honor in the first century Hebrew culture. It's, it was such a place of honor that in families, there was a tradition where when children would enter the room where their dad was, or dad would enter the room where their children were, the children would stand up with one exception, that if, the, if one of those kids became a rabbi, when they entered the room, dad would stand for him. That's the level of awe and reverence that this society holds this position. And he runs up and he says, and he literally falls on his knees before Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's two words that jump out right away. They say, what must I do? Not, not who must I follow or 
what has to change or who do I surrender or what does it look like to enter into eternal, limitless, abundant life? He says, what do I have to do? How do I earn this? How do I become worthy of this inheritance? How do I become somebody who's good enough for it? And Jesus answers him. He speaks actually right, he speaks right to that lie. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. He's, he's speaking exactly to this guy's worldview. This guy thinks, the Torah teaches, how do you get right with God? You follow Mosaic law. You follow the law of Moses. And that's what this guy is thinking. He says, you know the commandments. He actually doesn't even ask him. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give tes- false testimony. You shall not defraud. And then honor your mother and father. And it's almost like I, 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 I can picture the guy. He hears that. And his reply is, teacher, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Like, like a sigh of relief. Like, oh, good. Okay, it really is about following the rules. It really is about works. It really is about doing things right. Which is, it still kind of bothers me because I don't know why, if that's true, and I've followed the law and I've done these things, why do I still like lay awake at night? Why do I still feel like this uncertainty? Why do I have this anxiety that I'm not right with God? But if for a moment, if you, if you ran up to the greatest teacher in that day, and he said, do these things. For a moment, you'd feel better. And Jesus looked at him, and he speaks right to what he knows is under the surface. He says, you're lacking one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus turns around to his disciples. And he says this statement I've heard so many times that, I, that when I hear it, without, like, without really slowing down and trying to let the text speak to me, trying to let the text come alive, what I hear is like, like, a, like a judgmental declaration. It is, it is very hard for rich people to get into heaven. Example A, I told you. But it's like, there's this moment that's so easy to miss when it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and his heart cared about this man. And the man went away sad when Jesus said, you've got to let go. You've got this thing in your heart that that owns you. You've got this desire for wealth and status, security and safety. And if you really want the peace, if you really want eternal life, I don't even think Jesus meant like eternal life later. I think if you want to experience that eternal life right now, you've got to let go. And the guy goes away sad because he didn't have great wealth. Great wealth had him. And Jesus turns around to his disciples. And it's so easy for me to imagine his voice is actually broken. His voice says, it is so hard. It's so hard when great wealth owns your heart to really discover the freedom of the kingdom of God. And we look at this guy who... Maybe, the, maybe one of the most frustrating things about this, when I read this, I think, man, that guy came so close. And I actually, I actually don't think this is the end of the guy's story because he ran up to Jesus. He fell on his knees. This is a man who has hunger. So I think his story worked itself out. But you look at just this little episode, this, just this short little place, and you think, man, man, he missed it. God was, was making a deal with him. He said, you know that huge fortune? It's nothing. You want to go 
you want to discover real life, you want to discover eternal life, go sell that. I'll trade you a nickel for a billion dollars. You give up that fortune and I will show you how to leverage the desire and the passions and the gifts that I put in your life and you will not even know what kind of fortune is in store for you. Because something I've learned is I've, I've got this weird, my career is, is taken on this, like, this kind of odd niche that I did not intend, but I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, I work with a lot of CEOs, I work with a lot of like high level uh, pastoral leadership, I work with a lot of people with money, a lot more money than I have. They have problems that I, I don't have. And, <laughs> and there's something you, you notice. There's something you notice when you get to really dive into people's lives who um, have been entrusted to steward a lot of wealth. Is you realize that all the conditions that I think led to them being wealthy, all the things that stand between me and greater wealth, they don't think that way. I think, man, if, if I only had been lucky enough to be born to different parents, or I had been lucky enough to start like just the right business at just the right time, or I've been lucky enough to have this idea or this connection, really wealthy people don't think that way. Really wealthy people, like you'll talk to you, because it comes up again and again, like they'll say, you know, I realize if like something crazy happened, if my identity got stolen and my entire bank account wiped out, I realized I would just do it again. I would do it again. And it's a principle that uh, Jim Rohn, one of the greatest financial minds, I think, of the 20th century, he, he talks about it. He says, wealth is not a number. Wealth is a mindset. He talks about what it means to be a millionaire. And he gives this example. He says, I can give anybody a million dollars. It doesn't make them a millionaire. And the way you know that is because if I give you a million dollars, within a couple of years, it would be gone. Unless you grew your mindset and actually became a millionaire internally. And, and I was thinking about that. I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what we see in the lottery system, isn't it? That if you look it up, don't do it right now. <laughs> Almost 80%, more than 70% of lottery winners over a million dollars within three to five years are completely broke. Four out of five people who get the dream, right? The, the idea that just handed to you, windfall in your lap, wealth beyond imagine, within three to five years are flat broke again. Why? Because it's not a number. It's an understanding. It's a relationship. It's an orientation that wealth, wealth is a gift. It's a promise. It's a desire, but it's, it's most level. It's a, it's a level of maturity. It's an internal mindset. So we look at this first example, and I think one of the the key takeaways is the realization that the reason this man walked away, it wasn't about the money. The reason this man walked away is because what he heard Jesus say was if you want to get close to God, if you want to get right with God, if you want real eternal life, you've got to die to that dream. You've got to actually, you've got to grieve the loss of that dream. You don't get to be rich. You don't get to be a steward. You don't get to be entrusted. You don't get to be this thing that you know is, is like in you to be. You don't get to be that. You've got to give it up. And he goes away sad. Because if you go back to Jim Rohn, if you go back to those clients I get to work, you realize, oh man, Jesus was just inviting them to be transformed. Not to, to leave the desire behind, but for the desire to be purified. Man, if you went and you sold everything, you gave it to the poor, you came to me, you start from zero, you follow me, and you realize three to five years from now, you have 10 times the kind of wealth that you had a minute ago, you get unleashed. Right now, now your desire is dangerous because it's submitted to the resurrection of the cross. It's submitted to the will and the love of God, right? Does that make sense what I'm saying? But he didn't know that. 
And when I believe that my desire is a barrier between you and me and God, that I have to, I have to disown the desire if I want to get close to God, that desire is going to pop up somewhere else in a destructive way. The second story is just a few chapters later, verse 33. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, which is, that's a bold thing to say when you're talking to the creator of the universe. And Jesus responds to him, responds to them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at the left in your glory. He said, I don't know, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say, yes, yes, we can. He says, well, buckle up. It's coming because <laughs> you will drink the cup and be baptized. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And there's this really interesting thing that happens right here where you realize, man, James and John approach Jesus with this desire that they don't, they don't really know if it's okay to have. They don't really understand it. And you know that because they try and manipulate Jesus. Does anybody's kids know that move right there? We want you to grant us whatever we ask, but they leave out the request. My little, my uh, 11 year old, Olive, that's one of her favorite moves. She'll, she'll run up and she's learned that she has like, the more excitement she has, the deeper the buy-in. So she'll run up to me really fast and be like, oh my God, dad, I got the best idea. What is it? Say yes. <laughs> and then of course, like, it's a trap. It's like Admiral Atbar's in my head. It's like, warning. I said, first you gotta tell me what it is. First you gotta say yes. <laughs> it's like, let's bungee jump off the roof. Like something stupid, just something ridiculous. But they know this, they know this move. Because I think there's actually, something, there's actually something really beautiful about James and John in this moment. Do you know that there are three disciples of the 12 that Jesus gave nicknames to? One of them you already know, it's Peter, which means rock. We don't think of it as a nickname, we think of it as a new name. James and John are the other two people that got a nickname. You, anybody know? Like, let me show of hands. Do you know what the nickname was? So Boanerges is the, is the word, which means sons of thunder, which how epic is that if, if Jesus gave you the nickname Son of Thunder, you'd be like, give me my own FX show. I own this. <laughs> it's not quite as cool as it sounds because son, Sons of Thunder refers to, it's a Hebrew idiom, right? It's a cultural thing and it basically means hot-tempered or another way of, of translating it would be disturbance. That these guys, they make waves. But I love that because James and John are a little bit too raw to cover up. They're a little bit too honest to wear a mask. And so they say things that you're not supposed to say and they ask questions you're not supposed to ask. I think, man, that's what Olivia's doing when she runs up to me. It's because she still trusts her desire. And she knows that mom and dad don't say yes to everything, so I've gotta help them understand how good this idea is. And she said, man, I, I hear what you're saying, guys. Because what you're really asking me isn't about the seat. It isn't about the seat. You guys are going to follow me into a life that has more meaning 
more significance. The ripple of your life is going to go so much farther than you can possibly imagine, but you're focused on what it's going to look like, right? You're focused on the description of the seat. You want to control, you want to control the way that your desire manifests. And Jesus is saying, it's not about the seat. If you put your trust in the circumstances of your desire, you lose your purpose. What Jesus is asking, he said, if you'll trust me, the seat I have for you is better than you can imagine. And so they have to go through this sifting process and they don't, really, they don't necessarily like it, uh, but they go because they're surrendered. The last story, I'm doing so much better, Pastor Matt. I was, I reached this with like, I was already in the red when, the last story is this moment with a blind beggar. And Jesus is walking with his, his posse. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's actually helpful for me to remember that Jesus didn't walk around like, um, I don't know if you guys have seen Jesus movies. Jesus, usually Jesus movies made by Christians, like they're not all the best. There are some really, really good ones. There are some really, really good ones. And there's some really ones you're like, oh, we could have just left this. Of the show. But it's Jesus, Jesus is always like walking around, kind of swaying a little bit, and his guys are like right there. In reality, and it, it describes this many times in the Gospels, Jesus walked around in a horde because he was known. You can't raise the dead or heal the sick. You can't speak with the kind of power and authority that Jesus spoke to and not attract people. And so he's, he's having one of these moments, and he's surrounded by people. It's chaotic. And it says, then Jesus came to Jericho. Jesus and his disciples came together with a large crowd leaving the city, a blind man, Barnabas, or Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many people, the crowd, rebuked him and told him to be quiet. They said, shut up, dude, this guy's important. But he shouted all the more. He's just like, something unlocked. There's a lion in this guy's heart. He said, God is just a few feet away from me. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. And he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. Call that guy. So they called the blind man, cheer up, get on your feet. He's calling you. And there's this really powerful image. It says he threw off his cloak. And if you understand, man, a beggar, he has two things. He has his cup and he has his cloak. His cloak offers him just a little bit of protection. His cup offers him just a little bit of reception where people can provide, you know, five minutes or one day. And he lives out of his cup and his cloak. And it's so powerful that it says, hearing this, he threw his cloak aside. The only thing that he knew to be security, the only thing that he knew that could keep him warm, he throws it aside. And he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him that question again. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus, Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received sight and he followed Jesus alongside the road. And there's, there's something that, that just stops me on my tracks. I mean, Jesus says, your faith, your faith has healed you. There's something about the condition of that man's heart. There's something about the nature of his faith that he got a different outcome than the rich man or John and James. They both, both of those other two got blessed. They got truth. 
They got to be close to Jesus, but this man got exactly what his heart desired. And you see, there's a couple of things here, man. But first, the blind man knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted to see. He didn't, he didn't say, I want it to look like this. He didn't say, I want you to rub mud on my eyes like you did that other guy. He didn't try and control how it looked. He didn't try and control what Jesus gave. He said, Jesus, I want sight. I want it your way. I want to see. And the guy had nothing to lose. He went to Jesus and he said, I'm, you tell me to follow you. And I'm there. It actually says he got up and he followed Jesus along the road. And there's something about that condition. When we are, when we're realizing that we've gotten maybe to a place in our life where we start to undermine our own, our own dreams. There's, a, there's an exercise I'm gonna invite you to do in a few minutes that when the first time I did it, we're gonna ask ourselves that question. We're asking, man, what is it that I really want? And we do this exercise where I allow myself to, to answer that question, just like Jason did, right? Where he asked the question, what do I want, man? I, I wanna be a steward. And he couldn't, he couldn't quite get to the place Jason, you get to disagree with anything I say. He couldn't quite get to the place where he said, God, put me at the top. Trust me as the spearhead. He said, you know, I can, I can tolerate the idea of being an analyst. Jason shared that in the first service. He said, up until that point, I could see myself as an analyst. I never saw myself as a CFO. And we bring that dream and we bring it to the cross and we put it down and we stand back and he says, okay, because, because you're willing to sell it, because you're willing to bring your desires, and I know they're scary, right? Because you grew up and the world really tried hard to convince you that, that I want to take those things from you or that they're bad or that they need to be hidden. And when we're really to bring those desires to the cross and let them die, God is able to do something that the Bible calls resurrection. He's able to say, man, you thought you thought the thing you desired was this, this, this cheap imitation of intimacy that you see online. That was never your desire, Brian. You see, Brian, I wired you for deep connection. I wired you to attune to people's hearts, to enter into their pain and lead them into wholeness. That, that pornography was just a distraction. It woke you up because you were living in emotional isolation and you didn't even know it. Or, or the guy who says, man, I, I was so convinced that if, if I brought my career to God, he would say, I had to think smaller or I, I, had to, I had to give all my money to the church or I had to do something else. And God said, no, no, no. The problem was never the wealth. The problem was you didn't trust me with the desire. You see, that desire wasn't yours. You didn't think of that. You didn't put that in your heart. I put the desire to be a builder, to be a steward, to be somebody who could be trusted with more wealth than you can imagine. I put that desire in your heart. And then we disown it because we think there's something wrong. Somebody came up to me after the first service after doing this exercise and they said, Brian, I, I couldn't believe how uncomfortable it felt to write it down. It's like, this is something I've known was a desire of mine for a long time, but I, I was too embarrassed to tell somebody. I was too embarrassed to let another person know that there was something I wanted. I think in the church, we're comfortable with people living their dreams. We're not so comfortable with people 
wanting their dreams. We're comfortable with somebody being successful and wealthy. We're not so comfortable with somebody wanting to be successful and wealthy. You know that it, it's, it's, I can meet you there, like I get it. Because there's something about sexuality and wealth and really passionate, there's something that's slippery, huh? It can be tricky. That we know that the difference between slavery and being a blessing to the whole world is where my love lies. Do I, my, does my love lie in the wealth or does it lie in the cross? And the wealth is something that allows me to serve God's mission. The, the, that's a tricky thing. So I understand the anxiety, I understand the fear, but then what we do is we disown it. And what we know from clinical psychology, what we know from understanding and working with people who have addiction is that disowned desires surface as destruction. 10 times out of 10. One of the most powerful things, I think honestly, if I'm a, as I was preparing for this, I was like, man, you know what's taught me the most about healthy desire in my career? It's actually working with people who are recovering from addiction, which is odd, to, it's odd to think that, right? Addiction is desire gone wrong. Addiction is desire gone astray, spun out of control. Addiction is desire in the form of destruction. But as you work with person after person, you hear story after story, and everybody's got something unique and they all, they get exposed differently and the conditions were differently, and the, were different. But then you, you realize all the same things. Since the first stage, the first stage of recovery is you have to stabilize the behavior, right? The behavior is dangerous. It's actually wreaking havoc. The substance, the thing you're acting out with, it's wreaking havoc, it's actually causing destruction. So the first thing we do is say, all right, let's, let's get rid of the behavior. Let's support you, we'll focus, we'll get some coping strategies. But stage two is where it gets really exciting because stage two, okay, I'm not dominated by that preoccupation to do the thing anymore. And I'm left with the root system of that destruction, which is I actually don't trust my own heart. Because if I really trusted my desire for intimacy, I would go find authentic intimacy but because I don't trust it, I think the only kind of intimacy that's really gonna fill my heart is the one I find in hiding. Does that make sense? And so there's something so powerful that's taught me as I've worked, walked with these men recovering from addictions, you realize, man, there's a stage actually, I'll, I'll say this first, there's a stage in the 12 step programs. There's this language that Alcoholics Anonymous use that I think is so powerful. They call it the dry drunk. And that's the person who goes through the stages and they get the behavior stabilized. They stop drinking, but they never heal their desire. So they go through life really good at abstaining, but living in that hunger. And when you're working with this man, you realize, man, that's where they all start. As soon as you stabilize the addiction, as soon as you, you get the behavior out of the way, that's where they're, they're the dry drunk stage where they're like, man, I. I'm afraid that I'm gonna spend the rest of my life wanting this thing I can't have. And that's when it gets really exciting because you get to ask the question, man. And it's kind of an uncomfortable question. Have you ever thought about what did that addiction do for you that was good? What was it about that thing that took over your life? What was it about that thing that actually was serving you in some way? What is it about pornography that captures our brain and our heart. If you understand, if you understand intimacy in the human brain, that the same pathway that gets activated, the same dopamine oxytocin pathway that gets activated when somebody views pornography, it's the same pathway that gets activated during romantic intimacy. And, and it doesn't have to be sex. Sex, yes. I mean, way before you get there, I, I should have warned you, this is like PG-13. I didn't really, I didn't plan for it to be. 
but even before we get there, when somebody's dating and you, you, you start to feel that like intense gravity and you start to feel like, oh my gosh, I feel drawn to you. I feel connected to you. I feel bonded with you. I'm falling in love with you. That dopamine oxytocin pathway is lighting up. And when somebody is deprived of it or they believe it's wrong to want to be rejected, the brain gets into what we call emotional isolation. It becomes incredibly vulnerable. And then they get exposed to something like that content and their brain says, that's what I've been looking for. And so you get to sit with these men and and they realize, oh my gosh, it was never about the image. It was never about the money. It was never about the behavior. It was never about the status. There was a deeper hunger, a deeper desire that God actually put in my heart that got disowned, displaced, and became destructive. And I wanna invite you guys to do something that I think is a little bit a little bit vulnerable, take some courage. Because I wanna invite you guys to open to the idea that maybe that thing that feels so uncomfortable, that thing that feels embarrassing to name, or maybe even darker than that, if I, if I own this, it's, it's gonna be something I have to give up forever. To imagine, man, what if you didn't put that there? What if that desire actually isn't a reflection of your shallowness or your greed or your, what if it's a reflection of God's image in you, that the root system of all addiction is actually the imprint of God in our hearts. And when those needs get denied, the need to know that I belong, the need to know that I'm powerful, God made you powerful, the need to know that my life matters, when those needs get denied, they surface as addiction. And so what I want you guys to do is ask that question. And what is it that I really want? And it doesn't have to be something super familiar. Like maybe when I was doing this exercise, the first thing that came to my mind was, man, I want... I want a solid, resilient family. And then I just felt the Holy Spirit say, Brian, you, you know how to do that. Your family is solid. You're, go further. What's the thing that feels scary to name? And ever since I've gotten connected to this unbelievable community, God's been stirring in my heart and revealing to me, man, there's something about stewardship that feels, that feels wrong. There's something about wanting to be trusted with more. Something I love so much about that Pathfinders video is they just declare, we wanna be leaders, we wanna be wealth builders, we wanna be influencers. And there's something about it like, ooh, the first time I heard that five years ago, my, my, my spirit just said like, oh, are you allowed to say that? And I felt God just challenged me, go there. And so the first thing I did, I took this card, and that's what I want you guys to do today. I want you to take that card that's on your seat. And I wrote the word wealth. And I just sat with it for a second. And then I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, I don't think that's your real desire, Brian. Go a little deeper. What is it that would wake you up? What is it that, that would keep you at the office late? What is, what is the thing that, that you burn for so much that you would actually miss some time with your kids or, or miss out on relaxation or miss out on recreation to do that thing? And I was like, God, you know what I really want? I, I think I want to be trusted with more because I want to be truly generous. I want to, I want to walk into a person's life and and see a need and to be able to say, I I can help with that, I'm here to give. Or I wanna walk into a building, God's house, where people's lives get changed. And I wanna know that, that I helped that building to exist. And I wrote down the word generosity and it was mind blowing to me. How just owning, letting myself own that desire, 
for the next three days, I was confronted what felt like nonstop. I was like, everywhere I looked, there was more like, oh my gosh, I undermine myself here. I undermine myself there. If I really want to be generous, why don't I stick to my budget? If I really want to be generous, why don't I invest or take some kind of risk? Why don't I open up new pathways for revenue? Why don't I do anything to get closer to that? Like, oh, I do want to be generous. I also want to be secure. And I also want to look like I know what I'm doing. And I also never want to have that ugly feeling of losing money. And I also, I have all these competing desires because my heart is divided. Because a long time ago, I had to disown the idea that it was okay for me to want more. And I wanna invite you guys to own your want. And so I want you to take that card, I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to help you answer a question. The Holy Spirit doesn't answer this question. Ask the Holy Spirit, will you help me take a really good look at my heart, be courageous and say, what is it that I want that feels scary to name? And I want you to write it down in that card. I want you to put that card in your pocket and I want you to carry it with you for 30 days. And the reason I want you to do that is because I want you to wake up every morning, I want you to grab that card and I want you to sit there and hold that card until you can hold it with joy until you can hold it with expectation, until like maybe you pick up that card and you feel embarrassed or you feel guilt or you feel not good enough or you feel like a fraud or you feel like an imposter. You're like, okay, okay, there's the, there's the resistance, there's the anxiety, there's the fear. I'm gonna sit here, I'm gonna hold this card until I believe that God is taking me somewhere. And then I want you to put it in your pocket and carry it with you and let it be a reminder that, that stepping into desire, it's, it's not a deliverance moment. God does incredible things in our life through deliverance. Stepping into desire is a discipleship process where he teaches us all the ways that we've walled up to protect. He says, man, we got a lot of walls have to come down. And if you can persevere, if you can, if you can stay with me, I'm gonna take you somewhere much, much better than you can imagine. I'm gonna just pray for you guys. And I'm gonna leave you with that card. God, I, I pray for every heart in this room. I pray for my heart my heart with, with my card in my pocket right now, God. And Lord, I ask for the courage to believe that every desire in our heart is rooted in your image. It's rooted in something you placed in us, the desire to build, the desire to be incredible parents, the desire to be deeply connected to other people, the desire to lead, the desire to influence, the desire to build wealth, the desire to be generous. All of it, God, comes from you. God, I pray for the courage to trust your process, to trust your seat that you have for us and to trust that you don't wanna take these things away, but you need us to lay them down so you can give us our desires in a way that sets us free. We pray these things in your precious name, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.